Hi, my name is Alan, I'm a business designer, and you're listening to the DMBA podcast where we share business confidence for designers. Welcome to another business design gem where we take interesting business examples, current business news, and talk about their relevancy for the work of designers. Today, I'm joined by Joe and Andrea, who are both mentors at the DMBA program. Joe is a business designer at DesignIt in Brooklyn, New York, and Andrea is also a business designer at PwC IXDS in Berlin. So in this episode, we talked about circular economy, pay-for-performance models, podcasting business models, and much more. So if you're interested in learning more about business, also check out our website, www.d.mba where you can find a free seven-day mini MBA course, which is basically an email course. So across seven days, you will receive seven emails and learn a few business skills relevant for designers. And now, without further ado, here is the Business Design Gem with Andrea and Joe. So, uh, Joe, do you want to kick off? Sure. Um, so a business model that I've been thinking about a lot recently that I wanted to talk about you both with today is outcome-based pricing. So I think probably the most well-known example of this is with personal, personal injury lawyers where you only pay if you win, maybe like mm-hmm. a third of your winnings. Um, I don't know if this is as relevant for both of you, but here in the U.S. we're really <laughs> litigious. So you're always seeing ads for personal injury lawyers and you're always seeing you only have to pay if we win. And I think the goal there is it's, it's supposed to ensure your incentives with the lawyer's incentives. Um, there can be some issues there, though, because you've also seen in the U.S. often they're overly incentivized then to settle so they can make some men- money without putting in too much work. So there can be some issues with it, but it is an interesting model of just very clearly aligning incentives of the client um, and the, the company. And I think what we see with this is that even a business model that's really standard in one arena, like with personal injury lawyers, can be really innovative when you apply it in another arena. Um, and it's just that applying it in a new context that creates something really new and interesting. So as, yeah. an example, as an example, last year I was working on a healthcare project um, where we were working on developing products to improve the efficiency of staff working in hospitals. And we needed to quantify the value of the efficiency to the hospital. So we spent a lot of time trying to understand how hospitals are paid by insurers, which is really complicated and messy in the U.S., but Essentially, in the past, the standard model was to bill based on RVUs, which was just the amount of services and resources that were used on the patient. So kind of thinking about it as a billing based on volume of care, how many things were done to that patient, how many Band-Aids got used on them. Uh, but if you're the patient in the hospital, you actually don't really care about the number of Band-Aids used or the number of doctors you met with. What you care about is your outcome. And a good outcome could actually be leaving the hospital early, even though that would probably mean that you had fewer services performed on you and less supplies were needed. Um, another good outcome might be having a really good experience at the hospital, so feeling like you were treated with dignity and asked about your experience uh, and kept informed, and also not having to be readmitted to the hospital after you leave. So if a hospital's reimbursements are based on the patient's experience and their recovery, that correctly aligns the patient's incentives with the hospital incentives, and it completely changes the way that the hospital works because they're mm-hmm. not going to do unnecessary procedures anymore. Um, so this hospital project just made me wonder about how this outcome-based pricing could be used in other service industries to align incentives between clients and service providers. So I have kind of a crazy example that I want to throw out to both of you. Um, so for this, what if the price of your flight was dependent on whether or not you made it to your location on time? So I know today there's like ways that you can claw back your money after the fact if you have a terrible experience and get there really late, but it's not seamless. So can you imagine if there was an airline that said you only pay half up front and then you pay the second half if you get there on time? Uh, how would that kind of change the way 
that that airline works and how they compete with others. That's interesting. Brilliant. Yeah. That changes everything. And also like, I think airlines kind of live of the fact that you pay upfront. So there it may be really tricky, but just in general, I think the question of allowing incentives through pricing is one of the like basic design questions and it's really, really important. Um, so yeah, airlines is definitely interesting, but just maybe going back also to the hospitals, I remember also uh, working in that space. And um, one of the things that we looked at was how do you change? Like if you, if you think about it right now, you, the, the hospital is being paid when you're sick, right? So how do you change this whole equation? Not just through the experience when you get into the hospital, but how can you even prevent that to happen? So we were kind of exploring the ideas around what if, you know, there is just a fixed fee that the hospital gets um, to just treat patients in their area, like around them in the region. And this gives an incentive to just not let, <laughs> I mean, it, it can also turn bad, but like to, to, to just prevent or like, you know, preventative care so that patients don't even get to being sick, basically. That's really interesting because then they're going to invest a lot more in making sure you go to all of your yearly appointments and that you're tracking things so that hopefully they can catch things much earlier. I think when you, I think one thing that's interesting about this shift is that you need a whole ecosystem supporting it. You can't be thinking as just the individual doctor at this point. You need to be working with the nurses, the administrators in the hospital, um, other care providers throughout the community to make sure that together you're all driving towards this incentive. So it, it does require a lot more collaboration. Yeah, and usually the, the the devil is in the details, right? You, there is like, initially it sounds like a great idea, but then that, that's why this is like a ubiquitous model is to pay up front for something because it's just simple mm -hmm. and aligning incentives is hard. As you said with the, the lawyer's examples, right? There's yeah. then this hidden incentives to just settle when it's not even in the best interest of, of uh, the client. Yeah, it's true. I think you. I think that the model has to be that you identify what that main out, what the main goal is. So for a patient getting better, but then you have to constantly be iterating to add in new metrics to make sure that you don't over optimize for that one thing. Like my brother is a teacher, and I was talking to him recently about how could this model be used in education. And I think the first thing that comes to mind is just what if, as a teacher, you get a certain percentage of your students' future earnings, uh, because then you're going to make sure that your students can get good jobs, but the outcome of that might be that everyone becomes a hedge funder and we don't have any nurses or teachers. So that would be a out bad outcome for society, maybe a good outcome for the student and teacher. So I think there are also, there are multiple stakeholders. It's not just the main customer, but you also have to be thinking about society in general when you're coming up with these. Yeah, and maybe to your point, talking about society and thinking about how the actual health system is being regulated at a much higher level and figuring out how systemic the change has to be. And I, and I recall a, a a project also in health where we were trying to build a service ecosystem for a client who's producing physical goods for the uh, health industry. And the country regulations were giving us such a massive headache in putting together the proposal because we are dependent on them. And even in Germany, I think right now they're trying to put together a, a new platform, kind of like the Apple store of the healthcare applications for Germany which can you, you can only imagine how much more complexity it adds to anything that you want to create or innovate. But for sure, there is a massive space for innovation there. Yeah. Have you both seen uh, Lambda School? 
Lambda no. school. No. Yeah. So uh, it's it's one of those hot startups in educational space where basically their their biggest innovation is exactly that. So you kind of pay for your tuition fee after you get a job, and you kind of sign a, I think it's called income sharing agreement or something like that, where basically you agree to you know you don't have to pay a tuition fee upfront, but once you start making salary, that's when um, yeah you start you start paying back. And what's interesting is if you look at obviously a big idea in startup is MVP. Let's focus. Let's niche down. And what they started with is, yes, a well-paid job, which is tech industry, like developers and stuff. And it's like you said, right? It's it's a, it's a very good idea that works in one sector, but it's really, it's it's it would be interesting to see how it would work for another sector, for another industry, or even like for, for a thing like the MBA, where you are, you know, you're joining after you already have a job. So it's kind of hard to measure that direct impact. So a lot of these ideas fall down on um, what do you really want to measure? Because you can always game the measure. Yeah. <laughs> That's the problem. And I think if you if you have an, a few measurements that are supplementary to each other, what's interesting yeah. is it will actually eventually change the entire business. It's It starts with the revenue model, but it's actually going to change all of the ways of working. So in education, teachers are going to spend a lot more time one-on-one with students trying to understand what companies they can place them at. And there's some value to that, but education is also about having time to explore and think about different things you might do with your life and not being pathwayed down one thing right from the beginning. Right. Any other thoughts on, on this topic? I think the last thing I'll, I'll leave it with is I'm now thinking about this in my industry. I work in design consulting and we've historically based on time and material um, but a new opportunity we're looking at is asking for some kind of equity in new products and services rather than just that fee based on time um, so that if it succeeds, we will as well. But it's really tough because we do need some kind of cash flow. So I think it might be something more like there is part of the billing is on time and material. And then in the future, looking back to see if a, one percentage of it can also be based on the equity. And it would also change the types of projects we're trying to get because we'd need a really diversified portfolio of risky and safe projects. So I, we'd have to be much more intentional in the, the clients that make up our portfolio as well. I think you hit the nerve for many listeners who are working in consultancies. I think this is like the big problem right now that needs to get solved. Um, so by the way, we had one guest on the podcast, Jules Erhardt, who is trying, who is kind of working on a model for that. His, um, it's called um, Creative Studio. I think creative capital studio factory where um, he's playing with the idea of yeah being paid just an equity for the the projects he works on and the team works on and it's kind of a combination of getting the equity plus having certain investors who cover their salaries right to cover for the cash flow and then there is like you you secure the bottom but then you have certain like you know you can go up to so you're you don't you're not capped with how much revenue you can make if your work is really great, and you can offload a little bit of the risk then. Which is exactly. Great. <laughs> cool. Should we go to the next one? Yeah, sounds good. Is that me? 
<laughs> cool. Uh, yeah, more than happy. Um, so I wanted to talk about circular economy. Uh, I've become really passionate about the topic, especially when I found out that it is actually not that quite of a new concept as people tend to frame it. Uh, it has been there for around 40 years now and digging more into it, I actually ended up finding that it um, that you can trace it back to 1,700 when a guy, a doctor, had an idea, which was that you can start actually repairing teeth instead of pulling them out. So that was kind of like one of the first examples of what does it mean to reuse an existing material um, and create, extend its value. <laughs> and I absolutely loved it. And I had the opportunity to uh, be involved in two strategic projects for the business model redesign of a digital commerce company who is working with physical goods, though I have now a curiosity also, what does it mean to for digital commerce companies um, that, that mani manipulate digital goods, so the other way around, but also talking with co-working spaces, some of them bigger than the others, about what does it mean to transform uh, this the circular business model uh, and idea into an actual value proposition for the clients as a competitive advantage in the market. But then also, how do we now transfer this within the actual um, design of the co-working space, starting from the building in itself? So how can we start building more um, modular systems so we can move around, see Corona, there, there was a massive problem with subscription payments. So we had a lot of people uh, leaving um, and a more circular model <laughs> and design of the of the co-working space uh, might have helped the situation. So instead of letting go of people, you can reconsider the actual use of the space there. So uh, what I've really found interesting about them was that in both cases, um, there was like this level of complexity, but also let's say insights in the design or that we under that we discovered within the design of the business model. So one of the things that I found is that very often, while it is um, desired to start running the business case and see if it makes sense and how can you start reducing costs and actually um, maximizing profits, I've discovered that the mindset is very much missing in, in a lot of the times. And then the second one is that within the value chain, as you go in and you're trying to figure out, you know, who are the partners, uh, how much you can actually cover, do you need to make some new strategic alliances? Uh, can we actually build in in-house capabilities? There's this balance of ownership and liability, which is a very opens up very big discussion for everybody around the table about who cashes in and who pays if something happens. Um, so that is a very big discussion. And we figured how to trace that within the actual uh, yeah, uh, design of the business model. Um, and then also a third learning was the importance of time. Time was not something that in linear business models uh, we would factor specifically as being a critical variable and dependency. Uh, but in this case, it was only about the time. So the more we were able to maximize the value of certain goods or materials, the higher than we were looking at the actual um, yeah, profits and cost reductions that we are making. Um, I'm just going like, to list, list my learnings here, uh, but feel free to stop. Um, Another thing, yeah, please. Well, maybe, maybe just to, yeah, one thing that I found really interesting, um, just from what you said so far, is application of circular models to 
I usually think about circle models when I when I think about physical products, mm-hmm. physical goods. But yeah. I haven't really thought about it like with consulting or with services, as you said. And I think this is mm-hmm. a as you worked on this project, I'm really curious, like how is it this different if you work on uh, physical versus uh, service? Mm-hmm. I believe it's it's in the way you define the concept or the principle of secularity. So if we say secularity is a is about helping humans overcome the scarcity of resources, people, and skills by making general things, including natural resources, more available and therefore the long term, you can then expand this within the actual organization and the way we actually work within the company itself. Um, so that kind of led me to the first insight regarding the ops. Um, and you know, before jump taking this big step in the world into the massive value chain and ecosystem that you need to deal with, what about starting inside? Start it as a pilot. Let's see how it works there because you will anyways need to um, transfer your business operation model within this yeah, new um, operating framework. Um, so there's a lot of complexity there uh, that was undercovered and specific for the, 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 the digital goods. Um, that I would say is one of the biggest ones. Uh, where you could start applying it immediately. I really loved what you said about for the co-working spaces when COVID started, they laid off all these employees. So that was the usual model of co-working spaces, but how could they have been repurposed? Because I think similar to Alan, when I think about circular economy, the thing we're trying to fight is thinking of things as disposable, but yeah. often in businesses, it's also the employees who are kind of treated as disposable yeah. in tough times. And, and how can we think about adapting their skill set very quickly to meet the new needs that exist. Mm-hmm. I think it's such a holistic model to think of. Um, in, in, in the linear business model or economy, however you want to call it, um, I was reading once, there is no such concept or the word of caring does not exist. We are meant to create, put in use, and then um, yeah, get rid as soon as possible so that we can right increase um, um, the purchase there. But in a circular uh, thinking model, you're trying to make the most of everything, the people you work with, the materials, and at the end of it all, the nature, because everything is connected and we look at it as an ecosystem. Um, so that I that I kind of like stuck with me in the process while working. <clears throat> and it, yeah, it seems like it has to align with a more long-term vision of your company too which I think right now we're hearing that executives are, are trying to get there, even though it's very difficult mm-hmm. with the way that they're evaluated by their shareholders. Mm-hmm. But yeah. I think we can see that shift to thinking about things in a circular way where we're trying to get as much value as we can over a long period of time if their success is also being evaluated over a longer period of time. Yeah, you're totally right. It is definitely a corporate strategy. Uh, it is not a department's job or something like value. <laughs> Uh, it is a massive rollout and it requires uh, dedicated resources to implement and then monitor uh, its adoption and use by the people. And I think this brings us to a very uh, critical point. And I think you, Joe, had it as well in your uh, example, which is how people are actually incentivized in order to become members and adopt this new yeah, way of working and, and using the materials around. Um, so, yeah, from an incentivation perspective, I think we still have a lot of work to do. I think there is more that, that can be done there on top of financial incentivation. 
um, in the end, I, I really think it's about uh, culture and and and, and education. Uh, and um, my my assumption there is that it's going to take us at least one more generation to fully transfer into that mode, um, and if not, make the linear economy model. Um, obsolete at least find a way to balance the two of them uh, not that they need to be one or the other but just yeah better work together and i think to that point actually that's where design and designers have the biggest advantage um, actually in germany we have um, a group for systemic thinking which is quite new it's been around for three years so moving the systemic thinking from the academia and bringing it into the real world and starting to find applications for it i think circular economy is a great way to do to do so so having business designers working on the business model and evaluating the complexity of the ecosystem running the scenarios okay in this for example process what can we uh, reuse repair remanufacture uh, let's understand the pros and cons there and the risks and how can we mitigate them? We need the service designers because once we have that plan or at least perspective about how we want to run things, we need to redesign the way we're doing things. So that's where a service designer, I think, would be very valuable. Um, and then or the organizational design part is also a massive component. So talking about adoption uh, and new ways of work in, the, in itself um, that's also something to look into. And last but not least, the user research. So working together to really understand not only the people that we have in the company, but also um, what is important for the other stakeholders across the value chain. And what does it take in order to transform them into partners, strategic partners on top of the actual, let's say, profits that they would get on top. Because this is not something you do for profit. That is the exact way around <laughs> that's why we have the current uh, model the capitalistic model uh, this is really about something else so then finding those partners is even more important um yeah such I'm a curious, big you... such a big conversation yeah exactly that's that's what i wanted to ask you it's it's a huge topic like i was just curious if you found one or two resources that felt like really good starting points for maybe somebody who wants to learn more about not just circular economy, but like also how do you apply it to services maybe? I could think of two books and I'm looking at my library right now <laughs> because I can spot them. Uh, so one of them is called The Circular Economy, A User's Guide. I think it is written by Walter Stahl. I'm sorry if I say his nom name wrong. I really apologize for it. <laughs> Um, but he's one of the founders, anyways, of circular economy, and he has been working on moving circular economy from the academia within the modern space and understanding um, what actually takes in order to drive this implementation forward. So he talks also a lot about business models and how to start creating profit. And the other one, it's a book called The Environmental Economics. It's uh, also new. So both books are quite new. Um, and the second one is written by a professor from the Stanford University. And what he does there is kind of like this mix between economy and philosophy, but in the end deconstructs Adam Smith's way of doing business. And he, and he, yeah, he just takes you through the whole history of economics and shows you, um, yeah, how wrong we got it and how beneficial it is to work in this model. And he also comes up with economic uh, yeah, let's say formulas um, 
to look at the different uh, yeah, profit centers that you can create within a value ecosystem. Lovable books, massively recommend them. Yeah, sounds really, really great. Especially the second one got my piqued my interest. Um, cool. So actually, you talked, you you kind of touched upon also the topic that I wanna uh, talk about. So the value chains a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, so the examples that um, the example I wanted to bring to the table was or is a company called Away. Do you know Away Luggage? I have one of their suitcases. Oh, okay, perfect. <laughs> the problem is everyone else in New York does too. So you can never spot your own, not that we're traveling, but you can never find your own bag at Baggage Claim. <laughs> Maybe you can get one with a discount right now. <laughs> so for those who don't know what Away is, it's basically a startup or a company producing um, premium but affordable luggage. So actually on this podcast, we already talked about a uh, another example, which is kind of the, the the genesis of the way. So in episode 18, we talked about Warby Parker, so the retailer of prescription and sunglasses, prescription glasses and sunglasses. And we explained that basically they got the idea for the startup um, by really deeply analyzing the arena and figuring out what's wrong with the value chain, which is the fact that it's monopolized by one company. And that's why there's a huge difference between the cost of create, creating one uh, you know, like spectacles and then selling them. The difference is like between $5 and then they're sold for like 200. And um, so they, what Wolverine Park has decided to do is just cut out the middleman and um, yeah, integrate the whole value chain. So what's interesting about Away is that Away is actually founded by two former employees of uh, Wolverine Parker. And um, the way they got idea is that um, they, they just kind of figure out that, the problem with the luggage industry is very much similar. Uh, one of them basically said that there, you basically have just two options as a consumer. You can either buy uh, very low priced but poorly made luggage or high quality but way too expensive. And apparently they were on the call when one of them said this and the other one was like, wait a moment. That sounds that sounds familiar. And that's when they started to you know draw the parallels between the two industries. And what they did, again, was kind of really good research of what is happening in this arena, in the arena of the luggage industry. And what they figured out was a very similar problem, right? You have a product that's being sold through so many middlemen that in the end, it's just being overpriced. Um, So, you know, you go from the producer to the wholesaler, to distributor, to retailer, and then finally to the consumer. And that's why, you know, these, um, you know, suitcases, some of them, uh, the premium ones cost north of $1,000. So what they've decided to do was basically um, solve this in, in, uh, inefficient value chain by cutting out this middleman. So specifically the wholesalers, distributors, and um, um, retailers. And what they've done is basically just sell it direct to consumers. So it's mostly their biggest um, channel is online sales. And this means that they can um, share these uh, savings in the production with consumers. So instead of this luggage costs costing $1,000, it's $200 to $300 for their kind of entry uh, model. Um, so what's interesting about this, this whole story is that it seems like there is a good recipe for coming up with uh, ideas for what to do 
for how to change the, the strategy and the business model of a company by having a really good research of what's happening in the value chain in the industry. And, um, you know, even if you don't change the product as much, um, even though a way did change it, like brand is nicer, et cetera, but at the end of the day, it's still a piece of luggage, you know, <laughs> but they created a whole story around it. This reminds me when I was in grad school, one of the Warby Parker founders came to speak and he told us when they came up with this idea at Wharton and they identified if they had the whole value chain, how much cost they could cut and their initial price that they were thinking they would do that would be viable was $45 a pair. And they went to their entrepreneurship professor and pitched the idea to him. And he said, nobody is going to buy glasses for $45 because that seems way too cheap. Like, it, it's just crazy that that is how much inefficiency there was in the value chain that they could get the price down from 300 to 45 And I remember them saying that that's when they had the idea of the buy one, give one, because now they could charge 90 give away another pair, and it, everybody wins because now I don't think I have these cheap $45 glasses. I spent 90 which in my mind is kind of the right amount of discount for the value, and I get to feel good about also giving a pair. I'm fascinated about this price sensitivity topic. Coming back to the health industry, we had the same thing where the client wanted to charge a subscription for 10 euros. And through the research, we ended up telling them, hey, a health service that costs 10 euros cannot be perceived in the same way or looked at because the average in the industry is 50. So I'm like fundamentally questioning here the value that you're bringing through a service you're not another mobile app you're not spotify that's that that's not what you do you're a medical service providing an online platform totally it's interesting too with both warby and with away they are not products that i would initially think would do well with just only online D2C sales, because for glasses, I think I need to go into a store and try them on. And for luggage, it's like this really bulky item that I think I'm going to want to go see in person. But the experience before was so bad and the connection with the end consumer was so missing that even with those hurdles, they were still able to make that value proposition, proposition clear and actually get to a point where now they can have their actual retail locations mm -hmm. for those final few consumers who maybe weren't able to adopt before they could actually go into the store. I'm just curious, how did you how did you learn about them, Joe? About Away? I think uh, because I work in consulting, I travel a ton, and I was on a trip with another coworker, and she had one. And it the, <laughs> it does just look really nice. Like, it's so simple. Um, it's not branded at all, which I really love, uh, mm -hmm. except now everybody has it, which is kind of a problem. <laughs> I think you touched upon a really interesting thing, which is also the strategic part of this, which is if you decide to go direct to consumer, you are making a trade of decision, which is which means you're not in a retail store. So you can't really count on just people walking in and learning about your product. So now the savings that you gathered from selling directly, you really need to invest that money into raising the awareness. So what Away did really well was, you know, the branding part of it and marketing part of it, um, which was advanced. I mean, what I found really interesting for them is the fact that they, they're not positioning themselves as a luggage company, but as a travel company. And that really opens up like the spectrum of people you can talk to and what you talk about as a brand, et cetera. Yeah, actually both with Away and Warby Parker, the ads really are not about the product. Like the Away store in Soho always has different quotes from famous writers outside of the store about travel. 
And then the Warby Parker store, which is just a few blocks away, looks like this beautiful library. It's got like these high bookshelves with like a Beauty and the Beast ladder that you can go on. So it's what they're talking about is that experience of reading and being able to see your book really well. They're not talking about the glasses. I just have one other comment to what you said, Andrea, about price sensitivity. Have you heard of uh, Van Westendorp method? No. So it's 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 a really nice research tool for figuring out like a, a price range for a product. Mm-hmm. It basically uh, it means that you ask your potential clients or consumers four questions. So the first question is at what price? So you now know. Yeah, yeah. I'm sorry, the naming didn't sound familiar, but please continue. Please continue. Yeah, it's this. Um, I think I even butchered the pronunciation. One Westendorp's price sensitivity meter. That's this. That's the official name. But if you will just Google for price sensitivity meter, I think you will find it. So four questions. The first one is: At what price would you consider the product to be so expensive, expensive that you would not consider buying it? In other words, it's too expensive. The second question is: At what price would you consider the product to be priced so low that you would feel the quality couldn't be very good, too cheap? Then the third one is: At what price would you consider the product starting to get expensive, uh, but you would have to give it some thought to buy it? And then finally, what price would you consider the product to be a bargain? Mm. And that's interesting, right? So you get you really get those uh, borders of where you need to play as a as a product and as a brand psychologically. Yeah, there's so, there's so, so much content about this pricing sensitivity. For example, um, another factor is the difficulty in comparing. So the less options customer have, the higher chances you can actually uh, yeah you you have to price more. Um, the switching cost effect, how much. Uh, how much pain is there in changing? Um, yeah, the framing effect, and this then also connects to the marketing and how you assemble everything. Um, Sounds it. like we should have one whole episode just on the pricing. I think it's a major topic, totally. Mm-hmm. Especially because I think a lot of these D2C brands are talking about their price as a markup of cost to, mm-hmm. to have that transparency of telling us it makes cost us $10 to make this, we'll give it to you for 20. That's pretty good. But as a customer, I don't know how much you actually care about the cost, you care about the value. So it's it's interesting to see how those two different ways of getting at pricing the cost based and value based are intention right now. It can easily backfire. Also, if you look at how much it costs to make a shoe, like a pair of shoes, you know, when you see the number, it's like, wow, they're ripping us off. Um, but like a lot of people just focus on, you know, the cost of the goods sold, but then you have everything else around that, right? You want that shoe because it's being endorsed by a certain person and that costs a lot. Yeah. So it, it is a complex topic and it's uh, highly psychological. It goes beyond just ethics and everything else. Oh, can I make a recommendation? Uh, there's sure. just a new documentary coming up. It's called The Conscious of Clothing. I actually know the director behind Patrick Cole, and he talks about this exact thing, how the fashion industry has abused pricing and business models uh, in their own benefit. And the true cost of the clothes and the fashion is revealed in this documentary. So just putting it on the table should come out soon, <laughs> I hope. Um, it's really good. Gives a bit a- more of an inside perspective. Because often, actually, I think, Maybe the consumer is not paying the cost, but society is paying that end cost when it comes oh to the environment or the, the working conditions. So 
yeah, it is. You don't want to be too focused on the cost because if you just optimize for that, it's going to have bad outcomes for other people. So I think we need to take this. Let's take the circularity and pricing (laughs) and do an updated version on it. Cool. Let's actually move on. Otherwise, we won't have time for all the the stuff you prepared. Um, Yeah. Who wants to go next? Um, Yeah, I actually wanted to uh, deep dive into the um, uh, value proposition for the co-working spaces. Um, That being the second client um, client, uh, project that I've uh, worked with in the the circular economy. Um, And there, what I've realized or something that I've learned while building the business model was the amount of scenarios that we had to put in place in order to come up with um, with the actual benefit strategy for the partners in the ecosystem. So while we were, while we had to design a business case and figure out the business model, a lot of the work behind was actually around stakeholder management, um, stakeholder management and uh, yeah, the actual benefit strategy and the transition change management plan from one scenario to the other. And because of this, also realizing how much change there has to be on the partner side as well, <laughs> uh, because we are looking for strategic partners who have the same uh, values values as us. Um, so just because of that, it is a very complicated um, yeah, a process to go through. Um, and an observation there when it comes to researching strategic partners and then figuring out with them the actual cost structure that I want to go in. Um, it was a realization that there are not that many companies who have, let's say, um, a span across across the value chain. A lot of them are very, let's say, niched and they provide niche solutions. Um, I think even in Germany, there is one startup right now who has been working on a innovative way of separating in the fashion industry um, the different types of fabrics. So there's a lot of solutions for mixing mixed fabrics, sorry, for, 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 for the same fabric to transform into atoms and recycle as a material. But a lot of the clothes that we're wearing right now, they're actually made of 30% cotton, 20%, and you know the drill when you read the, the back of it. Those are the actual clothes which are very hard to reput and make use of. Um, so you end up being very stuck in the process, trying to figure out how to move forward because there is not that, that enough innovation in the market to really close the circle and call yourself in some industries a um, a yeah circular uh, company, which then requires an investment that you want to do on your side. Um, and that is then a prolonged discussion um, there. But yeah, just wanted to share with you um, this, this one last example, going deeper a bit in the strategic work done with the partners in the ecosystem. Maybe what would be interesting to hear more about is um, like scenario development. How mm-hmm. does that process look like? Um, so we open an Excel. I'm joking. <laughs> <laughs> um, so we're trying to... I think it depends on the client or industry that you're operating in. Um, What we try to uh, do in the process is to understand for each of the potential scenarios where we can A, reuse, B, remanufacture, and so on and so forth, what are the the value streams there? 
and what are the basically backend costs that we have and implications. So for us, the exercise was in mapping all of the scenario, having an analysis on them and realizing what are the, let's say, um, um, yeah, dimensions, ranges, which we can accommodate and we can discuss what we need to eliminate because it just doesn't make sense. So you actually end up customizing your circular model because there is no one way of doing it holistically. Um, and that, I think, uh, for us was a lot of work in the process. I think the way you phrased it, like this exercise, is exactly what it is, right? It's like coming up with these scenarios is more more about like you learning than actually looking for the solution. Like yeah. by playing out these scenarios, you actually see what else could happen because there's never the solution. It's more like, okay, now I know the boundaries, mm-hmm. constraints yeah. of this space. You, This is exactly what it is about. And also because there's not that many companies who have this like complex overview of this, their circular business. So again, you have like very niched players somehow doing very small portions of the process. But if you really look holistically at what it means, um, you need to see yourself as a pioneer. If you are one of those companies, you need to know that you're doing something maybe which is not completely new, but it is new in its implementation in today's world. So you need to take that learning process or go with the learning process because there's a lot of risk you need to uh, minimize and mitigate. And that is what I, I personally think design can help most because that's the mindset we're coming with. Nothing is a given. Everything can be learned. Uh, and we are here to do this, this exploration together so that we can minimize the risk that's coming or could come for you in the future. Totally. Instead of biz, uh, instead of building a, a massive business case with 500 Excel uh, sheets and lines and saying, you know, this is the world. And I'm like, great. How, how do we get there? You know, let's let's talk facts. Mm. Who's the next person I, I need to interact with? Okay. What's the deal there? Okay, now let's move forward. So the, all of that process, um, yeah, requires scenario planning. <laughs> this reminded me, I'm in the middle of doing stakeholder interviews right now for a project. And we always set up the stakeholder interviews by saying some of our questions might sound naive, but we don't want to make any assumptions. And I think it gets at exactly what you were saying with nothing is a given, but everything can be learned. And in a business context, I think there's often a fear of coming in and seeing, seeming like you don't know everything. But that can be mm-hmm. the most dangerous thing to think yeah. that you to assume that you do know everything or that you have to appear to know it. Um, and so, yeah, that that mindset of coming in just to learn with no assumptions is so important as you're building out scenarios. I'm going to use your line, Joe. I love it. It also protects you if you ask anything that is egregiously naive, because it's like <laughs> I was being naive on purpose. So, <laughs> yeah, I've seen that one sentence make such a big difference um, because sometimes you don't really know even though you know you should know and then uh, you kind of have you opened yourself self the door to actually ask that question so yeah can you repeat it again how do you how do you phrase that i'm going to ask some questions that may seem purposely naive but we don't want to make any assumptions perfect <laughs> not it cool so let's uh, transition to the last case last example let's you join To finish it out, I thought that we could get a little meta since we're on a podcast and actually talk about the business models of podcasting. Yes. Um, So before we dive in, I'm curious, what are are your favorite shows and how do you listen to them? The NBA for sure. 
<laughs> no, I actually, I actually like the podcast from the New York Times, Modern Love. I'm sorry, uh, I, I, I just generally enjoyed the production. But um, I know you, the client you want to mention, and I love them as well. Um, One of my favorite is how I built this, and I think, mm-hmm. yeah, that's that's a really well produced show. Um, for some reason, nothing else comes to mind. But yeah, how I build this is something fresh in my mind now. I think mine is, is Fresh Air, the interview show with Terry Gross. But it's interesting, just in talking about these three, Modern Love, How I Built This, and Fresh Air, they are so different. Modern Love is, is entertainment. Uh, How I Built This is, is kind of like entrepreneurship education. Fresh Air with Terry Gross is often current events um, or learning about different books and film and culture. Um, and so I think what's interesting is when you think about the competitive arena for podcasting, it's still really broad. It could be substituting for radio if you're staying up on current events with podcasts it could be substituting for music if you're using it to entertain yourself while you're multitasking like commuting or cleaning or it could be a substitution for audiobooks if you're using it as just pure entertainment in the evening Um, and because it's so broad I think it's been very difficult to figure out what the right business model is for podcasts Um, and it's so the number of people who listen to podcasts is still growing so rapidly it's a huge market today more than a third of Americans podcast consume podcasts regularly uh, and if you look just a couple of years back, people didn't know what a podcast was. So it's it's pretty incredible. But despite this really enormous growth, the revenue really hasn't caught up. Um, and there's still a lot of different experiments and hypotheses out there about what that model should be. The two big ones today are freemium and subscription. So in freemium, the big players are Spotify and Stitcher. Um, and so those provide listeners with a free ad-supported version. And then there's also a premium version Um, And Spotify's platform, that would just mean that you don't have ads, but you can still listen to any of the content if you're on the free version or premium. Whereas with the Stitcher one, there's some content that is behind that uh, exclusive access. So you have to be paying to listen to it. Uh, I I don't know if you guys saw, but the Obamas have signed an exclusive deal with Spotify. And I would imagine that one of the reasons, I'm sure everyone is courting them for their podcast, but I would guess the reason that they pick Spotify is because it ensures everyone will always be able to access it because Spotify has chosen this freemium model. Um, And so the freemium model really gives you reach. And for some creators, it's the reason to work with you because it means anyone, regardless of if they're willing to pay, is going to be able to access it if they're willing to put up with some ads. Um, And then on the furthest end of this model, there's Luminary. And Luminary, you have to pay for. Its whole value proposition is that it's exclusive content and ad-free. And when they were pitching it to investors, they talked about themselves as the HBO of podcasting. <laughs> so they launched a while ago and in their initial launch, it was $8 a month. So very on par with kind of like Netflix pricing, um, but they've already reduced that month after month. So if you go to the site today, a luminary subscription is just $3 a month. And it's still, they are still having a lot of issues. According to Bloomberg, they're spending more than 4 million a month, but le- making less than a half a million per month in revenue and they only have 80,000 paying subscribers. And when you're comparing that to Spotify, which has 286 million users, it's just a tiny drop in the bucket. Mm -hmm. Um, So I know if I were creating a podcast today, I don't think I would put it on Luminary because it's just reducing the number of people who are gonna be able to access it so dramatically. But I'm curious, why do you you think that this this, Luminary model of trying to be the HBO of podcasting isn't working today? That's a good question. While I'm thinking about the answer, maybe I have another question for you. Uh, so when you've talked about Spotify, I guess since you uh, dove deep into this topic, what's what's the end game for Spotify? Why are they paying so much for these exclusive uh, like shows? 
because when I look at these numbers for Joe Rogan, for uh, now for Obama, Obama's, mm-hmm. then for Bill Simmons, you know, it's just amazing how much money they're paying for this. Yeah, I think their complete strategy is ubiquity, and they want anyone to be able to access their content. And one huge advantage they have is most people already have Spotify on their phone today. And so they already have this captive audience. They want to keep them there and serve all of their audio needs in one place. And the thing that's that's exciting about that is I think they're going to be able to do a much better job with recommendations than these other siloed platforms. Because if I'm already listening to most of my content in Spotify, they're going to start to learn my patterns of when I like to listen to different types of podcasts. So maybe in the morning, I want a news recommendation. Around lunch, I want some kind of storytelling. And in the evening, I want some kind of TV show recap. And so, and discovery is really tough for podcasts because there's millions of episodes out there and we're all getting recommendations all the time. It's kind of overwhelming because there's honestly no barrier to entry to making a podcast. Anyone can go up and do it. There's way too much stuff to choose between. So I probably want to go for with a platform that I don't need to download another app. And that's going to do a really good job with serving me with the kind of content that I want. Mm, I mean, I would question why they even call themselves the HBO of the podcast. I would rather be the Netflix. I'm just saying. I'm just saying. <laughs> yeah, that's a great point. I don't know why. Because actually Netflix would seem a little more accessible. Like I don't pay for HBO, but I, I do pay for Netflix. As an investor, I would have a problem with that. <laughs> <laughs> well, especially now that HBO doesn't even know what HBO is. They've got Max See? and... Go. There's so many different HBOs now. I don't know where to find content. <laughs> yeah, it's a tricky one. I think the analogy I see here with with uh, blog posts and just like paying for um, content online, like you have Medium, which is more or less for free. You have all these blog posts, which are amazing. And then you have newspapers who want to start charging for this content. And we're just not used to to pay for that. And I think it's psychology again. It's just if everything else is for free, why would I be paying for this? So we may get there, but I think the jump is too high. Mm-hmm. So maybe the pay- Patreon uh, solution is something in between that kind of works better where you actually, there is a free version, but if you really like the creator, you can back that creator up. And then maybe there's some additional like premium content or access to that person, etc. So, yeah. yeah, I think, Patreon is interesting because in podcasting, your allegiance is more to the podcast brand than the platform. So I can feel really good paying a Patreon because I'm helping support them to make more of the content I love. I don't have any kind of emotional attachment to the Apple podcast app that I use to listen to my podcasts. Um, So I think it could make more sense to make that connection. Cool. Yeah, I know we're running out of time, so we got to cut it a bit short. I would really like to thank both of you for coming up and sharing this experience. It was really amazing. Thank you both. It was so fun to talk with both of you. So fun. Thank you so much, Alan. And sending my greetings to New York. So that's all in this episode. We had to cut it a bit short as Andrea was running late to her client meeting. So for all of you interested in learning more about business, you can sign up for the 7-day mini MBA email course where you're going to learn a few business tools relevant for the work of designers. And you can sign up for the email course on d.mba, which is www.d.mba. And you can also join us in the next DMBA program, which will start on the March 1st in 2021. And applications for that intake will open in early January. And who knows, you may get mentored by either Andrea or Joe. That's all for today and talk to you soon. Bye-bye.